I Like Your Dress predominantly takes place in what is known as Metro Vancouver on the traditional occupied and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh Nations, and the Hunkamuna-speaking people. In this place of work, we hope that within our creative space that we take time to acknowledge, teach, and ensure we are using our voice to speak truth to power. You're listening to I Like Your Dress, an educational comedy podcast all about trying new things. I'm Allie. And I'm Tori. Tune in the first Friday of every month for a new adventure. This September, we honored Orange Shirt Day, a day of remembrance and honoring the lives of Indigenous children in residential schools. When thinking about who to interview to educate us on Indigenous communities, I immediately thought of our next guests, a couple of women that have taken the city by storm. They are empowering educators, facilitators, and even provided support in writing our podcast acknowledgement, sharing their platform to honor Indigenous lives and provide land acknowledgement and decolonization programs to schools and places of business. Please welcome Rhiannon and Andrea of Hummingbirds Rising Consulting. I'm Andrea, uh, and I'm one half. I'm the the non-Indigenous half of Hummingbirds Rising Consulting. So we're a a baby business that has uh, just started in the last couple of years, and we help organizations and Canadians uh, along the path of decolonization. That is so incredible, and we certainly need you more than ever during this time. Um, How did you both meet? Like, that's what I'm curious about. You both seem like a very empowered duo and I want to know the connection that you guys had when you kind of came up with this idea well we met a blockbuster back in the in the time where you had to be kind and rewind so and then we've we've um went our went our separate ways our careers took our separate paths and the power of social media reconnected us and we sort of were running parallel um, careers um, until about 2017, early 2018. Andrea reached out to me um, with a question that she had. So my question was, Rhiannon was the first uh, Indigenous person elected to the Delta Board of Education in this, as a school trustee. Mm-hmm. And in, I, I think it was like November or December of 2017, I asked her if I could buy her a cup of coffee. And I said, hey, I'm thinking of running for school board. And Rhiannon looked at me and she said, yes, yep, you should do that. And we're going to do that together. And so then we did. <laughs> that is did. so amazing. It didn't go so well. <laughs> hey, it's it's about the process, right? And the fact that you guys met, it started at Blockbusters. And it just, a few years after that, you guys ran for school board together. I mean, who knows where this world takes us? I think that is so incredible, though, that you guys have had um, an equal amount of leadership and just the same amount of integrity and then just kind of went with it. Congratulations to both for just running. That's amazing and an honor in itself. Um, So what inspired you to start up the business? Was it you ran for school board together and then you decided to kind of, okay, what can we do with this, um, with a focus of decolonization and the switch to that? So my life was kind of a little, what, a little blown up, a little turned upside down. Mm -hmm. Um, my my stipend as a school trustee paid my rent, so I suddenly found myself um, without an income, without a job, and a small child at home, and not entirely sure what I was going to do. Childcare was an issue. We are currently in a housing crisis and a childcare crisis, and we really need to get that $10 a day 
program mm-hmm. going. Shout out to the $10 a day childcare advocates. So I had no childcare. I had uh, to start figuring out what I was going to do. And going back to a full-time job seemed really out of out of my reach. So I was really thinking about what it was I could do, what I could do for work. And Andrea and I had a lot of dreams and aspirations of things that we wanted to achieve on the school board. So I knew that we had work that we wanted to do. Uh, a friend of mine connected me with an organization. I went and had a meeting with them, and it was this amazing meeting we weren't really sure what we were doing just our our common friend was like you two need to meet and I'm like okay so we went and met and we had this amazing connection and I was like yeah I was I was thinking about you know maybe doing some consulting work and I'm not really sure what that's going to look like and and they were just like no you're you're going to do it because we need you to come and do that work for us Mm -hmm. so I phoned up Andrea after the meeting and I'm like well it looks like that business we were thinking about we need to not wait till the new year um, to do that. So this was December of 2018 and Andrew came over to my kitchen table and we thought about what that might look like. And then we spent a few weeks trying to come up with a, with a name and yeah. And then in January of 2019, we launched a Facebook page and within hours we had two, two more clients. Yeah. Wow. We've, we have not advertised, we have not marketed ourselves. Every single job we've gotten has been, or every organization that we're working with has either come through Rhiannon's connections or mm-hmm. through word of mouth. Um, last year, probably when was that? Like maybe last September, we started getting, uh, people were reaching out and we're like, do you know this person? No, I don't know this person. And we're like, how did you hear about us? And they're like, so-and-so. And And we're like, we've never heard of that person. So really it's been just sort of spiraling through that. And yeah, it's it's been, it's been busy. Just goes to show how our community is in so need of this programming. Um, And definitely during this time where a lot of us are beginning to unlearn a lot of our, our previously taught ways of society, um, and this is, we need those resources more than ever. So I, I'm so excited f- to be doing this interview with, the, with you guys, cause I'm really hoping that maybe we can tackle some of those things together, but I'm actually very curious. What was the inspiration for naming Hummingbird Rising Consulting? So what was the inspiration for that? It was actually the first decision that we made was that we wanted our logo mm-hmm. to have a hummingbird on it. That was our first, the first thing we agreed on was that our logo was going to be a hummingbird. And we had both in 2019 lost our grandmothers who were we were quite close with. And hummingbirds was was uh, a bird that was special to both of our grandmothers. So it was really important for us to incorporate that. And then we started Googling. What were some of those those words that we were Googling to begin with? Hummingbird warriors, hummingbird. What did we we had like hummingbird was the start of. It wasn't, we didn't even start with hummingbird. It was, it, there were other words, but every time we Googled it, it was like these, these uh, culturally appropriating white hippies that we we're like, oh, we don't, we don't want to be on the list with them. Oh so, my God. So all of like the, the empowering, the, yeah, there was a whole bunch of words. We had some really good ones, but every time we Googled it, we we're like, ah, yeah. So, so then we just like, well, why don't we just call ourselves hummingbirds? Yeah. Um, so we just, we just landed on on it that way was to to avoid all of the association yeah. with the cultural appropriating white hippies. I and I just it's such a beautiful name like hummingbirds rising like it's just so 
so beautiful and it's your own and you've made such a difference already in your community and around Vancouver with it. Great job, you guys. I, I, I'm so for this program and I really do hope like I, Andrea and I previously worked in, in education and uh, I would love to be going to more professional development days where kind of stuff is taught because it is so needed in our schools, especially. Um, I think, Allie, too, that um, the the work that Rhiannon and I do is different than even if you found some Indigenous perspectives on a professional day list of workshops to take. What we do is quite different because you'll see that there's like pony beating and like make a dream catch yeah. or basket weaving and those that's not going to get us anywhere. So I completely agree. Yeah, that consumption of Indigenous culture, whereas we we have the approach that um, what really needs to happen for for Canada to move forward, for the harm to stop, uh, that our government continues to perpetrate on Indigenous people here on these lands, is that people need to know the truth. And, yeah. and we don't know the truth. And we don't know the truth on, pers- on purpose. So mm-hmm. it's really important. That's the work that, that Rhiannon and I do. And it's, it's really important as with Rhiannon as the Musqueam person is the indigenous person she gets to speak from her lived experience and I as white lady get to talk to the white people and say hey white (laughs) folks this is our job this is what we need to do and let's move on like let's uh, we we try to equip the people who come through our workshops with uh, tools to be able to start dismantling those systems that oppress not just indigenous people but lots of people I was immensely inspired hearing that you Andrea are actually not indigenous what have you learned from Rhiannon tell us about your experience Oh, Rhiannon teaches me so much. Um, <laughs> I've been able to sit uh, sit with Rhiannon around her kitchen table or in a car or a coffee shop or on the phone or Zoom or whatever. We don't yeah. get to be in the same place any, any anymore, which is weird. Um, yeah, I've learned a lot. And even though I would say that I was farther along on my journey of anti-oppression than a lot of folks that I know because my son is Indigenous, so mm-hmm. I've been sort of taking things from that perspective and and championing that for for the last 18 years since I've yeah. since he was my baby um yeah I've I've learned a lot Rhiannon has been working in this field not just not just with decolonization but anti-oppression and um social justice in general for a couple of decades so she's very well respected and well connected and and uh, I support her in whatever way I can because she is a busy busy person my goodness. Oh, both of you like just sound so busy and it's so you're just doing incredible work. So what can we learn about decolonization and how can we begin the process? By hiring us for introductory to decolonization. I love it. I love it. Self-promotion. Sneak attack. <laughs> that's, that's the thing is when we first started, we we said that we were reconciliation specialists, that we, yeah. that was what we did. And then um, we'd get in the door because people thought they wanted reconciliation. And then we'd get in the door and we'd go, surprise, what you're actually getting is decolonization. We're mm-hmm. what you didn't know you needed. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I think that that's been, we've shifted now because 2020 is the time of like, let's blow everything up anyway. Yeah. Um, we just, we're like, we're not saying we're reconciliation a reconciliation company anymore we're straight up decolonizing yeah but I, I think it's like one of the reasons why Andrea is such a good student is because she listens deeply and asks good questions and takes and takes correction as a gift yeah um, so those, those things are all really important and 
I, I noticed on your on your website that you had taken a pause to reflect, as many organizations in Canada did, around uh, the murder of George Floyd. And I don't think that people actually really stopped and looked at things that are going on here. Mm. So, so Canadians are quite comfortable to dissect and point fingers at things and blame the, the United States for things. Yeah. Um, but are, are grossly unwilling to do that same reflection of things that happen here. Yeah. So I, I've seen so many businesses do blackouts and, and pause and learn. Mm-hmm. Yet when just this year in January, when it was shut down Canada and Indigenous resistance was rising from coast to coast to coast, um, we heard all sorts of people talking about the rule of law and how all those barricades need to come down and the economy, the economy and how dare they? There was no there was no red out of, of profiles. There was no solidarity. I shouldn't say no, but yeah. uh, not, not in the same way. Yeah. Like that that was really hard. That was really hard to watch as an indigenous woman watching the outpouring of rage. There's thousands of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls here that don't get that same attention and don't get that same outrage. Never mind all of the children that are still stolen by the government. There's more children now in the in I say they say care, but I don't like there's they're not being cared for. There's more children in um there's more kids stolen today than there was then, and people aren't outraged by it. Uh, people are outraged by kids here that are stolen from their homes and separated from their parents. So it, there's this real cognitive dissonance. Our government continues to perpetuate harm against Indigenous people at an alarming rate, and our, our Canadian culture continues to perpetuate harm. So that needs to stop. As I'm trying to unlearn and trying to become more educated about decolonization, what I hear when observe reconciliation, it's more of the government just saying sorry, but not actively doing something. We say our land acknowledgments, but are we really listening to what the words that we are actually actively saying when we say them yeah. and how we apologize, but what actions are we doing after that? Are we Correct. actually creating change? Yeah. Um, so what are some little ways that we can kind of start that change? Do you guys have any tips for us of settlers and listeners of the show? So hiring Hummingbirds Rising Consulting. <laughs> Absolutely. First step. I think what's really important, as Rhiannon alluded to earlier, is about the listening. So um, white people have access to all kinds of podcasts, mm-hmm. documentaries, books, movies, um, TED Talks, YouTube videos, all kinds of things that we can educate ourselves on how to change our perspectives and include other people's perspectives. Like white supremacy is like a really big system and it's hard to just switch that off we're we're all so ingrained in it um and it like it affects everybody right it touches it touches all people all over the world it's not just north america and europe it's it's the whole the whole global community so we we should not be asking we as white people should not be asking indigenous black people of color what we should do that's i think to me that's the biggest piece is that we there are lots of resources and we have access to those things and so we shouldn't we shouldn't be asking our uh indigenous black people of color friends to tell us what to do and we shouldn't demand that they witness our work either i think that's a really they'll notice when you're doing work 
it's incredibly even just validating to hear that because I think a lot of people during this time are constantly, they want to educate themselves and they want to learn and they are going to their friends who are of color or are indigenous and just demanding them. And it's, I, I mean, taking a step back and observing that it just seems a little on the spot. And of course, like, everyone's opinions on this movement is going to be different. But if Mm -hmm. we're going to be actively looking at it as a whole, we should be doing our best to appreciate and acknowledge every aspect. And I, yeah, I think also um, you said something earlier too. You mentioned take correction as a gift. And that really resonated and just kind of sat with me because so many of us, I feel during this time are very easily offended or a, a lot of I don't want to be like boomers, but um, boomers boomers and Karens um, of the world um, are that are just essentially they have this mindset of, no, this is the way that I've learned and I am not changing that mindset. But if we are taking even just constructive criticism, I think we should start there. Just Mm -hmm. how we can model our minds to start accepting new and progressive ways of life. Cause we want to leave this place for our children and our children's children. And how would we want them to approach the world? How would we want them to love? And I think every person could say the same, that they would actually prefer a different mindset. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more with Rhiannon and Andrea. Today's episode of I Like Your Dress is sponsored by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online platform with classes covering nearly every topic you can imagine, from internet marketing, graphic design, or even flower arranging. Staying at home can start to look a little dull. You might be feeling unmotivated, frustrated, and, well, a little bored. Skillshare is the ultimate home classroom that can help you start a new hobby or perhaps refine an old skill. The teachers are experienced, friendly, and offer such a wide range of topics. You can get started from the comfort of your own home. Sign up for your free trial at skillshare.eqcm.net slash ILYD. And if you love their service, you can get a two-month subscription for free. Now, back to the show. And we're back. When I was in school, even the topic of residential schools, it was barely brought up. How can we begin to start the conversation with our friends and colleagues about our nation's past? Well, I think also by recognizing that the past isn't so past. Yeah. Yeah, completely. That, that there's a lot of people in the get over it camp who mm. like to believe that everything happened a really long time ago. And that's just so incorrect. You know, for the, the last government school closed in 1996, that wasn't, I was still in high school when it closed I had so, graduated so, like the, this framing this and that's that 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 Canadian propaganda that so many people have bought into right mm-hmm. is that uh, indigenous people are just erased from the Canadian consciousness yeah okay so this is this is my favorite thing to say so Canadians have an understanding that we were here pre-contact that contact happened and then some not very nice things might have happened. And then Indigenous people just completely disappear from the Canadian consciousness until whatever conflict pops up in the news. And then the retort is, the, why do you only care about it now? And why weren't you doing anything about this before? But there's there's like a hundred something years of Indigenous resistance that people 
are blind to or ignorant to or unwilling to accept or have no idea about. So this this idea that everything is in the past is so incorrect. Like it's, yeah, it's very much yeah. in the present has never stopped. Indigenous resistance has never stopped. We have never said that this is okay. We have never said that we accept, we accept these things. Um, and in particular in BC where it's, it's um, all, there's no, there was no treaties here. Like BC joined confederation illegally in contra- on contradiction to um, laws set out by the crown that had been on the books for how many years, Andrea? I think we like, figured out it was over 30 years. It was 30 yeah. years between the Royal Proclamation and when the first tall ships came into the waters off of what we now know is Vancouver. The Royal Proclamation was signed, but BC didn't join Confederation until 1871. So that's a, a foundational um, crack that Canadians just choose to gloss over. Yeah. So then everything else is built on that is crooked. So like Canadian identity has is if you think of it like a house, there's a huge crack in the foundation and then Canada was built on a cracked and broken foundation. So the whole country is is off kiltered and crooked and falling apart because the foundation is cracked. So you can't just keep patching up the walls or patching up the roof or fixing the windows when the foundation itself is cracked. So that's what the work of decolonization is, is addressing the crack in the foundation. Nothing has really been spoken to me like that or explained to me, even just trying to understand and educate myself during this time. Like nothing has really been addressed like Canada has is built on a broken foundation um, because it's so true. And it's just really sad to think about how even when I was in school, that broken foundation was not being addressed. I was going to say, but that's because the education system is made up of Canadians, right? Yeah. So the Canadians, we just keep perpetuating our own myths because yes. we're teaching ourselves. <laughs> so mm-hmm. when the curriculum changed a few years ago, that's great, but there was no support for the teachers and educators because it was just here, include Indigenous perspectives. So yeah. that's when you see, um, you know, appropriation of Indigenous art as an activity, um, you know, coloring pages, or let's make a totem pole, or let's paint a mask on a cedar shake or whatever. That's not, that, that's not the path. That's not what we need to do. And then so professional development days are filled with those kinds of workshops and not the stuff that Rhiannon and I talk about. Because that's the, the people in the system need to, need to change. So we get new teachers being educated in a new system where there is a bit more of this type of learning happening. Yeah. But then they are going into a system that is still made up of mostly teachers who are educated in the old system. And so then there's pushback and there's, you know, it's it's really complicated. And you and I, we worked with kids who I know I've said to said things to students and the next day had a student come back to me and said I went home and told my parents and my dad said what you said is not true it is yeah it is and at that point it's just it just kind of continues the base of you know what is being built in that house is just you know we are the people that are going to keep on putting new windows keep on putting and nothing is ever going to be addressed about the core of the structure and mm-hmm. how we can actually make it a sound place to live in for everyone. I, I'm so sorry. I'm a little speechless just because everything is really sitting with me. And this whole conversation of decolonization, it's it's so much bigger than what we think. 
And it's it's work, but it's good work. Do what we can to really just build a better place for our future and now for Indigenous peoples. Yes. And going back to your your question about Orange Shirt Day. So there is an Orange Shirt Day, an official Orange Shirt Day website that's got Phyllis's story on it. And I think it's important for people to recognize that Phyllis is still alive. Like Phyllis is very much still alive. So this is a woman who as a young as a young child was um, taken to residential school in a brand new shiny orange shirt that her grandmother had bought for her. Um, and it was promptly taken away from her um, by the by the nuns and the staff at the residential school and how heartbreaking that was for her. And that sort of was that pivotal moment in her life mm-hmm. um, that really stuck, stood out for her. So I just encourage everybody to go and um, learn her story and understand yeah. where this movement came from because it's a, it's a movement. It, mm-hmm. it came out of the... Um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission's touring uh, was a, it was a story that resonates with people and she's she's still alive doing this work herself so I just encourage everybody to go and um, follow their their website get their updates and buy her book and all those other things and I, you know this year on Orange Shirt Day was a bit of a different. Uh, orange shirt day experience for me um, because of the cohort system I was only in the one classroom <laughs> that I because of COVID um, that I'm that I was assigned to and it actually allowed for a really deep conversation with the group of grade six sevens that I was with so she's not even that much older than me she's only five or six years older than I am I think that's the part when Rianne was talking about it feels like Canadians think that Indigenous people just disappeared and that's part of it is because it isn't it isn't talked about enough. Mm-hmm. You know, just speaking further to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there were 94 calls to action in 2015 when that final report was released. Mm-hmm. And there's calls to action for all sectors and Canadians, and those need to be implemented. And then in 2019, when the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls report came out from that inquiry, there were 231 calls for justice. And that those are like straight up, they are not messing around anymore because the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was sort of like this, hey, this is what we need to do to make things easier. And the calls for justice are just like, this is what needs to happen now because Mm -hmm. too many people are dying. Racism kills and it we we need we need to stop. Yeah, racism does kill. And I think that kind of just goes along the board, even ties connection to everything that's happening with George Floyd as well. It's so crazy to think that we think that we live in the time that is like the most progressive and, you know, we're trying our best, but there's still more work to be done and there's still more hard like learning to be done as well. And um, so earlier you were talking a bit about um, appropriation of art and culture um, in schools, but there's also it's everywhere. Um, so in the question for appreciating art and culture for Indigenous communities, what is best practice? Best practice is buying directly from Indigenous people. Mm, yeah, completely. So I think there's there's a few folks out there right now that are taking up space in Indigenous places. So I, I guess it's all fairly public knowledge since it all happened in the press. But uh, fashion designer Chloe Angus is a local fashion designer and it, it was recently brought to light um, she's a white a white lady um, and she works collaboratively with some indigenous artists um, for some of her collections but there was an opportunity there's a an arts a Canadian arts grant 
to send indigenous fashion designers to London to London's Fashion Week. And Chloe applied for it under her company's name. And then she claimed that the she was nominated by her artists to represent them in, in London. So she took a spot away from an indigenous fashion designer and went to London with this huge opportunity as a white lady. It's it's been a really interesting like I watched that all sort of unfold live time through social media as different people were were speaking out and some people came to her defense and then some people came to her defense and then changed their minds. Um, so it was, it was really fascinating watching all of that play out in real time on social media Yeah, and, yeah. and the deep thinking that went along with it, because I have a number of pieces of hers that yeah. I have coveted and cherished and worn to all candidates debates, have my photograph wearing them um, pieces that I have, I have adored and loved and, watching sort of her crash and burn has been has been hard um but rightly so like she's she's taking up space she's not an indigenous fashion designer and those opportunities are for indigenous fashion designers so that's what appropriation looks like so it's it's profiting off of indigenous artwork that you didn't do or it's taking up space and opportunities directly away from indigenous people I think we need to stop with our narratives of being like being the storytellers for somebody else's story Um, in this discussion of kind of like art appropriation. And I've seen this a lot. What is your your thoughts and take on that? There might be some sort of like it might be a a nod to their ancestry. And what was your first tattoo? Some tribal markings on my lower back. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That's okay, because you're Indigenous. If I did that, it would be weird. Oh, my God. I'm, like, crying. That's, oh, my God. Oh, that was my favorite thing ever. Um, <laughs> thank you. Real real answer, though, about the tattoos is I think yeah. if, if they pick them out of a book, that's, like, super lame. Um, but I know I have a cousin who does artwork and will design tattoos. So I think, it's again, it's about who... Who is doing the designing? Where are you getting it tattooed? Um, I think some tattoo artists have relationships with Indigenous artists, and they might have a collection of work to choose from. So I, I think it all—I think it all depends. Like it's, if it's being tattooed by, if it's an Indigenous design being tattooed by an Indigenous tattoo artist, mm-hmm. that's one thing. Um, but like they, t- like tattoo artists shouldn't be putting their own spin on an Indigenous yeah. design. Even when I think of Justin Trudeau's indigenous tattoo that he has on his arm, I think it's a little disrespectful just because even if it was given from an indigenous tattoo artist, it almost there's a a sense of responsibility that it almost comes with that. It's about what kind of work are you doing forward? That's a very valid point. 100%. Are you doing the work that comes with the responsibility of that art? I don't know, but when your listeners are finished listening to this on November the 6th, they should tune in to Feminist Delivers. I'm providing the um, opening remark, Feminist Deliver, and it's mm-hmm. toward liberation, evolving beyond 21st century capitalism. It's going to be amazing. That's awesome, you guys. I think that's a bit of a wrap for us. Um, right. Would you mind telling the dear listeners about your, where they can find you and where they can hire you both? Well, our website, which is www.hummingbirdsrising.ca, 
we also have a Facebook page and we have Instagram, although we rarely use it. Um, so I'm on Twitter. My handle, I think, is 550 underscore Rhiannon. That's my Twitter handle. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at I Like Your Dress Podcast and ILYD Podcast on Twitter. Want to collaborate or be featured on our show? For more information, check out our website at ilikeyourdress.ca. This podcast is produced, written, and edited by Allison Shields and Victoria Fraser. Production manager and PR by Cameron Napier. See you next time. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.